people are fickle. And you see that with celebrities and movie stars and athletes, you know, one minute they're great, next minute they're hated, uh, then they're great again. Um, But what's interesting about that is that's kind of the thing with Jesus. Um, Jesus in Luke's gospel, you kind of see it as well as just about any of the four gospels. Jesus is gaining in popularity uh, up to this point in our study of Luke. The multitudes are coming, you know, by the droves wanting to see Jesus and hang out with Jesus. But it's chapter nine where we're gonna start to see a change in that. People are gonna be a little turned off by some of the, stu- the things that he says, some of the, the notions that uh, would sort of count costs. Like if you're gonna follow Jesus, he's gonna tell you stuff that we're, like we even looked at on Sunday. You need to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Uh, that wouldn't be a popular message. One of the things we have to be careful of is what's the popular message versus what is true. Um, because Jesus would say things that were only true, but not everything he said was popular. Um, That's something for us to kind of tuck away and keep in mind because I've noticed our world likes to go with what is popular um, and we go with the trend. But as Bible students, we should always say, we don't care about what's popular. We we care about what's biblical and what is true. Jesus is gonna start speaking true things that turn people off. And it's really from this point forward, we start to see the, the, um, the journey to Jerusalem where Jesus would be crucified and it starts to get more kind of, I guess you might say negative um, by the people's response in some ways uh, from Luke chapter nine and onward. So, uh, you know, the honeymoon sort of, if you would, is over. Uh, all the miracles Jesus has been doing, they're not gonna produce real faith. We've seen that as a theme throughout the story. Um, so let's pick it up. Chapter nine, verse one. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Very definitive section here. Jesus is sending out the 12. Maybe you remember in our previous gospels, the sending out of the apostles, uh, you know, the, uh, which is kind of an important thing to notice. I love that he sends them out with two main things, power and authority. You should note those two things, power and authority in verse one. Uh, I love those words. In the original Greek language, power is dunamis, where we get our word dynamite, strength, power, ability. Um, and it comes, that's where our word dynamite comes from in the Greek. Um, and then the authority, the word authority is the Greek um, uh, exousias, um, uh, exousia, which means power of choice, liberty of doing as one pleases, but only with uh, sort of an authority or an, uh, a power or rule of government. Um, one of the things I've noticed as a problem within church people is sometimes we have the power, but we don't have the authority. Other times I've noticed we have the authority, but we don't have the power. And it can be different denominations or different kinds of Christians, but if you're not careful, you can move um, without the authority or without the power or have one of the two, but not both. It's like if you you know, are at a stoplight, let's say you've got a Dodge Ram TRX, 700 horsepower pickup truck. And there you are, you've got the power. But if you have a red light in front of you, you don't have the authority. Um, you have to wait. You have to, as with all that power, you have to wait for the green light. Uh, otherwise, you're in big trouble. Um, but at the same time, um, what if you removed the, the battery from that TRX and shut it down 
and then left the guy at the red light. He could get the green light, but without the power, uh, you don't have anything. You, even with the authority, you're, you're stuck. Uh, that's kind of the condition, if we're not careful of the church, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's funny, our, our Baptist brothers and sisters, who I love deeply, they're, they're great, solid Bible theology people. I, I like them for their solid theology, but sometimes, well, they get the nickname, sometimes the chosen frozen, because they tend to be sort of shut off to the, the power. Um, but they do have authority, the word, but they don't have the power. Then, then you go to our Assembly of God brothers and sisters. I love them too. Um, the Assembly of God is a great bunch of people who believe in, sometimes, it depends on which assembly you're going to, but they're all about the power. <laughs> but they don't always have the authority, like when, when, depending on which, you know, Pentecostal brothers and sisters we're talking about, you know, the, there's, there's different degrees, but you know, the ones flopping on the ground and swinging from the chandeliers, uh, I'm not sure they have the authority to do some of the things they claim to do under the power of God. Um, the authority is the word of God, the power is the Holy Spirit. And that's such an important part of a balance that we all need. I think that's a, 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 you know, something that's oftentimes we miss. You know? And so how do you get the power? Well, this is where you have to you know, ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Um, you know, like in Luke 11, 13, we'll come to this in a few weeks where you know, Jesus reminds us, if you then as parents know how to, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, you know, how much will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? It's there for the asking, the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon your life. How desperately we need that. But at the same time, we need the authority. Uh, and that is, you know, the word of God to be, uh, you know, rooted deeply in the scriptures and do only that which the Bible gives us the green light to go and do. Uh, we don't need to come up with new things for the church to do that are creative new ways to express church or to, to be hyped up with religious um, things. We got enough in the Bible to tell us uh, that we're supposed to do. And, and hopefully the goal is any good church will say, let's just do what the Bible tells us to do. Um, well, Brad, I don't know if I like lifting up of hands. That's a very Pentecostal thing to do, lifting hands in a church. Um, well, the Bible says, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord your God. Pretty simple. Um, but I don't see a thing where you're supposed to flop around on the ground and be slain in the spirit. Uh, where do you see that in the Bible? First Babylonians is where you find that one. <laughs> it's not in the Bible. Now I've talked to my Pentecostal brothers and <clears throat> I've asked them, where do you get that in scripture? And they say, well, when Jesus was in the <clears throat> garden of Gethsemane and the Romans asked where Jesus was and he said, I am he, and the Romans all fell over backwards. See, they were slain in the spirit. First of all, those guys weren't Christians. They weren't in a church service. They were a bunch of wacko Roman soldiers. And if God wants to knock some Romans on their rear ends, I have no question that God can do that. Um, but do we make a church service around it because of that scripture? Um, or when Paul even was on the road to Damascus and he got knocked off his horse. I've heard them refer to that as a good, you know, slaying in the spirit scripture, <clears throat> but uh, not, not so. Again, Paul was not a believer. Um, I bet some of you guys, the Lord, whether figuratively or literally knocked you on your rear end, to get your attention. Uh, God can do that. I have no question that God can do that to save your soul. And he does. But do we have church services where we're flopping around or gold dust falling from our rafters or whatever things people come up with to try to hype stuff up? You don't need that. We've got plenty. Um, what about speaking in tongues? Brett? That's a crazy one. Nope. The Bible says that some people are going to see the spirit manifested in the speaking of tongues in the church. But the Bible says that all that's to be done. First Corinthians 14, Paul gives a huge dissertation on the word of prophecy and speaking in tongues and how it should look in the church. 
And what it doesn't look like is a bunch of people just going at it, speaking in tongues wildly, while everybody just kind of sits around and waits for it all to be over. Um, he says two or three at the most. And, and then w- with that comes an interpretation. That's equally a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And tongues are, um, are a word uh, not of, uh, to the people, but to God. It's God word, according to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14. It's interesting in that chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it's interesting to me that the Bible kind of reminds us that, that we're to let all things be done decently and in order. And that's kind of the important thing. We'll see that, by the way, later on, where Jesus is doing things by power, but he's also gonna do it in great order and structure. Uh, I think it's a great example. Jesus is always the best example of all those things. So make sure you have the power and the authority. Um, then you can uh, move forward and see what the Lord might do. Uh, we see that. Now, there's a third component here as well. And I would say with, um, he's sending them uh, with simplicity, they didn't, they didn't go to uh, preach and teach the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. They didn't go and talk about the eschatological views, four views, pre-trib, post-trib, amil, sawmill. Like what, what did they go to preach or teach? Um, notice what they, their simplicity, verse two, he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Very simple orders that he gave them when he sends them out. Preaching the kingdom of God. Well, what is preaching the kingdom of God? We'll talk more about that because that's gonna come up here in this chapter, um, which is really cool. But the idea of simplicity goes on because he tells them to keep it simple uh, in the way that they travel and what they do. It says in verse three, and he said unto them, take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor scrip, neither bread, neither money, neither have two coats apiece, and whatsoever house you enter into there abide and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Pretty cool. Preaching the kingdom is equal to preaching the gospel. It's the same thing. Uh, For to be a part of the kingdom, you have to submit to the king and accept the king and Um, that's Jesus, the King of Kings. So it really is linked there. Um, But I love how they went preaching. And if they were rejected, they're just supposed to shake the dust off their feet and move on. Our Jehovah's Witness uh, people, uh, have you ever had them shake the dust off their feet at your porch, at your house? Uh, They literally do this. They take that literally. They literally start shaking their feet. Um, If you want to see this, here's what you do. Jehovah's Witness comes and just say, I believe in the Trinity and you won't change my mind. The Trinity of the Bible. And they'll look at you (laughs) and shake off their feet and they'll walk away because they don't don't like the doctrine of the Trinity. They they don't really put Jesus as God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. They, They separate that. They take away from the deity of Jesus. So when you talk about the Trinity, it drives them uh, angry, especially the older generation. You know, there's always the older one and the younger one. Uh, the older one will be the one that will usually shake the dust off their feet, just, just if you're watching. Brett, are you just being funny with Jehovah's Witnesses? Yes. Anyway, no, it's, it's, it's sad because I, I do think a lot of them are sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. Uh, how do I know? The Bible. 
the word of God. Yeah, but Brett, what, they have the Bible too. It's just like ours. Nope, it's the New World Translation, very different than ours. Some guys over in Brooklyn sort of rewrote. They were not Greek and Hebrew scholars, uh, but they sort of rewrote the Bible to fit their needs. And that's always a dangerous thing. So watch out for that, but sad, but that's why they shake the dust on their feet. They take it from this. Um, that's what it means is like in those days when you traveled around, you'd get dust piled up on your feet, like literally. Um, you know, and just when you, you know, you don't get bummed out, man, we've traveled all this way and we're just being rejected. Jesus is like, you know, shake it off, man. Uh, just keep going, keep plugging away. I don't think he meant this to be a literal thing for us to do in 2023, as much as just shake it off if people reject you. Um, move, move on, keep going. Don't be weary and well-doing for in due season, you'll reap a harvest if you think not. That's the idea here, I think. Well, uh, so they went around healing everywhere. Verse seven, it says, um, now Herod, the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him. And he was perplexed because it was said of some that John, John the Baptist was risen from the dead. And some that Elijah had appeared and others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John, have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. So this is of course Herod, the same one that beheaded John the Baptist. Um, we've talked about that in previous studies. Um, Mark's gospel tells us that Herod was afraid when Jesus uh, was there because he thought it could be John the Baptist. Do you think that'd be a problem? You just beheaded somebody and you, you serve the head on a plate. Remember the whole story? And then you're hearing, he's back. It's like, <laughs> I saw him with his head on a plate. Uh, and so I'd like to see this Jesus. Uh, I think he was freaked out. Um, so um, the question is, uh, you know, uh, he, he says, I, I want to seek after Jesus, which is kind of interesting. And he desired to see them, see him. Now, this is something that's kind of interesting. Um, is it a good thing to desire to see Jesus? Yes. But is this a pure hearted desire to see Jesus? No, I have to point that out because some people will, will kind of make a case. Well, I've, I've sought the Lord and I've read the Bible and I've read about Jesus and all this stuff. But, you know, Jeremiah 29, 12 and 13 reminds me, you know, a little bit of, there's a link to the heart that you have and why you're doing it. You see, Herod had an impure desire to see Jesus because he was kind of freaked out about the John the Baptist situation. So Jeremiah 29, 12, then you shall call upon me and, and go pray to me and I will hearken to you and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all of your heart. So I am a believer. If you're a person with integrity, seeking after Jesus and truly wanting to find the truth, I believe the Lord will meet you and he'll always reveal himself if you come with a true heart to seek after the Lord. Herod had mingled intentions that were not all pure. Maybe none of it was pure. Uh, Herod would eventually see Jesus, but uh, would seek after signs and miracles of Jesus. And Jesus would be silent before him. Um, he was intrigued by Jesus, you might say, but not really a believer or seeking in Jesus at all. So this, this is gonna be a bad situation, obviously. Well, verse 10, uh, and the apostles, now pause there. Um, notice we changed their delineation. The first verse then called the 12 disciples together. Now in verse 10, it says, and the apostles. Now why, question, quiz time. Why did um, the scriptures here, why did Luke call them apostles now, anybody? Yeah, what happened in verses three, four, and five, where he sent them out to go and do this, that's what makes them apostles. Well, brother, the apostles are epistles. 
epistles are the letters of the apostles. I know, it's tricky. Potato, potato, apostles, epistles. Uh, but the epistles are the letters from the apostles. Uh, but the apostles, it just simply, it's the, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, apostolos, which is the Greek word, which means sent one, a delegate or a messenger sent forth with specific orders. And that was the apostle. Quiz time, see who was listening last time. Who's the numero uno apostle of all time? Jesus. Who was he sent by? Yeah, God the Father sent the Son, Jesus. That's, uh, that's the key. So that he's the first and foremost apostle. Then there were the 12 apostles sent out here. But later there are others that are called apostles in the Bible, like, um, you know, Paul the apostle. Um, well, he wasn't sent by Jesus because Jesus was crucified by the time he was called. But he was, if you recall, when he was knocked off his horse, you know, Jesus was there. He said, Paul, I'm the one you're persecuting. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, he said one you're persecuting. So Paul was sent by Jesus, but even still there's others like Barnabas and others who were called apostles after the fact. So that is sent out. There are those sent out by the Holy Spirit. And I believe in, in a, in a um, humble sense, you and I are as Christians called to be apostles. We're called to be sent out to go and preach the gospel. Um, but don't walk around saying, I am an apostle of the Lord and ask for a special offering when you show up at a church because you're an apostle. Uh, if somebody does that, they're probably wacko. Just gonna say that, maybe. But, um, but, but most of the time, uh, you kind of have to look at all of us as Christians, we're all sent out by the Lord to preach the good news. Um, so that's, that's the la layers or levels of apostles, kind of important. So verse 10, and the apostles, when they were returned, told him all that they had done and he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Um, and the people, when they knew it, followed him and he received them and spake unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. He wants to take the disciples aside um, privately, but that doesn't work out so good. Um, do you ever wonder like, what Jesus was thinking or feeling. He's, he, he seeks to take them aside privately into a desert place. But when the people heard it, they came out and found him. And, and you know, what Jesus does is just compassionately always loves the crowd in the congregation. It's kind of interesting to me to see the way some celebrities handle fame. Uh, you know, I mean, I understand there's some people that became celebrities and never wanted that. And that's a little different. But if you sought to be a celebrity, um, and then when the cameras come and they interview you and people chase you down and stuff, uh, it's funny how people sort of ask for that and then they get bitter about that um, because they're famous and people are bugging them all the time. But it's kind of an interesting thing because Jesus became sort of a celebrity here. People came from all over just to see Jesus from every which way. And, um, but Jesus didn't say, get that camera out of my face. You know, get the paparazzi out of here or whatever. Uh, every time you see Jesus just dealing with the crowds that were coming his way and he dealt with them graciously, even when he was trying to get away privately with his disciples and that didn't work out so well. There's many times actually, if you remember, he'd sail across the Sea of Galilee to get away from the multitudes, but the multitudes didn't end around and met him on the other side. Like, like he was unsuccessful, if you could say that. Uh, I say that reverently about Jesus. Um, but he was unsuccessful at getting away privately sometimes because the, the crowds were thronging him. Um, you say, Brett, can you say Jesus was unsuccessful at anything? Um, no, not really, because Jesus knew all things. 
And Jesus knew that that crowd was gonna come. But I wonder if that's there for us to learn, the bothering things that happened to us. Oh, I didn't sign up for this. Why am I being bothered by these people? I don't have time for this. Maybe you should make time because that's what Jesus did. Uh, even though he was seeking to get away privately with his disciples, the, the, uh, the crowd came and pressed all the more. So good lesson for us. Notice the place, this location, Bethsaida. It means house of fish or house of provision. Uh, the gospels portray the townspeople as, as fickle and narcissistic, by the way, uh, the people of Bethsaida. Um, uh, and although they saw tons of miracles and received the blessing of having Jesus there, most people would end up not believing there in Bethsaida. Um, this was Philip's hometown and also Peter and Andrew's. Well, Brett, I thought Peter and Andrew lived in Capernaum. They did. They probably were raised in Bethsaida and they ended up in Capernaum, which was nearby. If you're in Capernaum, you just go on the shore of the Sea of Galilee northward, just a couple miles. And there on the north uh, west side of uh, the Sea of Galilee, they found the, the ruins of Bethesda or Bethsaida, I should say. Um, interesting about Bethsaida, it goes with uh, Chorazin and Capernaum as cursed. Uh, they would be cursed cities and they found the ruins of Bethsaida. Now, it took them a while to, to find the ruins of Bethsaida because they were looking right on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee, but in the first century, they believed the Sea of Galilee had more water in it and the shoreline shape was different. So they started looking further back where the shore would have been, you know, a couple thousand years ago, and they dug and they found a little tell there where Beth Bethsaida was. So you can actually go see this little place today. Um, now, keeping in mind, this is Philip's hometown. Uh, this comes into play in the feeding of the 5,000. Philip's sort of a centerpiece of that miracle um, in, some, in some of the other gospels. Uh, not as much here, but, um, but it does make it interesting. Maybe Jesus calls out Philip because this is his hometown, home court advantage right here with Philip. We'll see how that plays out. Well, verse 12, and when the day began to wear away, then came the 12 and said unto him, send the multitude away that they may go into the town and country round about and lodge and get victuals for we are here in a desert place. But he said unto them, give ye them to eat. And they said, we have no more but five loaves and two fishes, except that we should go and buy meat for all this people. For then there were about 5,000 men and he said unto his disciples, make them all sit down by fifties in a company. And they did so and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed them to break and break it and gave it to the disciples to set before the multitude. The feeding of the 5,000. How many people were there? We don't really know. But Brett, it says 5,000. No, it says there's 5,000 men, which was kind of a normal thing to do in the Bible, by the way. I know I'm throwing you for a loop there, but you know, you, you painted this, colored the story in, in elementary school and Sunday school, the feeding of the 5,000. And it is 5,000 men. Uh, and it says that very clearly here in Luke. But in Bible times, why would they do that? Because they were misogynistic and chauvinistic. No, it's because um, in Bible times, the way they would number people often was who, how many fighting men do we have? Um, it was all about the fighting men. And, uh, and it's funny because I'm pretty sure we'd get back to that whenever we need fighting men. 
See, I think one of the reasons we haven't really liked men as much, you know, if you're male privilege and all that, and, you know, uh, we don't need men anymore, like in our culture. Uh, but, you know, I think when it gets down to hand-to-hand combat and, and, and fighting, uh, you kind of need to know how many men you have. Even to this day, it's kind of important. It's kind of funny. But that's what they did in Bible times. So like, you know, um, when uh, Moses was counting the men or the people of Israel, there were six, uh, I think 600,000 fighting men, uh, men of, you know, like from, you know, 18 to, you know, 50 or whatever their age was. And um, that's how they'd count it. That's how we can speculate that there was probably about two and a half million by the time you got to the children, the women and the elderly uh, that would also be counted there. So some would speculate that actually the feeding of the 5,000 might've been more like the feeding of the 10 or 12,000, which is just kind of interesting. I wouldn't die on that battlefield, but it is interesting that Luke makes a real point. There was about 5,000 men. And, uh, and then what does Jesus do? The, the 12 are trying to solve a problem. And, um, you know, it's funny. Okay, Jesus, what do you want us to do? And they start to direct Jesus. We can go to the store and buy some food. We should send these people away uh, and get, have them get their own victuals. We're out here in the wilderness. Um, do you ever try to direct Jesus when you're in your prayers? Like he's your little genie, you know? Okay, Lord, I want, I want this and I want that and I need it now. Um, but really, he's not our little genie and we shouldn't tell him what to do. We need to pray like Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or as Jesus prayed, not my will, but thy will be done. Um, I think that sometimes you need to pray more open-ended, not directing God in your prayers, as much as saying, Lord, you know all things. Um, you can intervene in whatever way you see fit. Moses made this mistake, by the way, in Numbers chapter 11. Remember the people were starving. They were saying, we're sick of this loathsome bread manna. I wish they shouldn't have been complaining about that in the beginning. Um, but they say, we want meat. Remember that story? We want meat. We want meat. That was the people of Israel yelling at Moses. So in Numbers eleven thirteen, 13, Moses says, okay, Lord, what do we do? The people want flesh to eat for these people. They weep and say, give us flesh. And um, the Lord says, okay, we'll do that. And then Moses says, okay, so what are we gonna do? And then, um, and then Moses says, okay, we can get fish from the sea or we can kill some of our cows. Is it fish or cows? Cows or fish? Come on, tell us, Lord. And the Lord says, is the Lord's hand waxed short, Moses? In other words, what's Moses doing? He's saying, we're gonna go fishing or we're gonna kill our, our cows. Which one, A or B? And the Lord says, C. Um, and I love the C. Uh, when, when God does the, the thing that's on his mind for his thoughts are wiser than our thoughts, his ways uh, are wiser than our ways, um, it's always a better story anyway. Killing cows and getting fish is not exciting. But birds flying from the sky, flying about pitch height, just ready to, you know, take a nice swing like, like at, the, at the home run bat, you know, and you could just gather birds all day long, just smacking them down like home runs. Why do you say that? Because um, the Bible says that, um, um, uh, that the least of the people gathered 10 homers each. Um, uh, sorry, that's a basket full of birds. So man, little chicken nuggets, you know, these little, these little, uh, little birds that they just fly down. Now the people were so, uh, you know, like, oh, finally meat. They started eating. It says they had meat coming out their nostrils. There's a bite. You didn't color that in Sunday school. Probably should have. But um, how does Jesus uh, deal with this? Um, you know, who, who would have thought? The disciples were like, well, should we go shopping or should we send the people home? And Jesus said, no, I've got a different plan. 
Um, and, and then what I really love is they says, okay, they're hungry. We'll give them food. And, and you know, you can almost see the disciples, that awkward pause. How? Can you kind of enlighten us to your plan, Jesus, since we're not going shopping and we're not going to send them home? Um, have you ever noticed that the Lord allows those pauses in your life, the how question, where you're going through life and you feel stirred to do something. The Lord might even be stirring you up to do something. And then you think, okay, Lord, that's great. You feel like you got a green light. Remember the power and the authority thing? You got the green light, but then you're like, but how? And uh, sometimes the Lord delays the answer to that just a little bit. Who would have thought Jesus would just take five loaves and two fish and just start handing it out? And as he handed it out, it would just keep expanding, expanding, expanding. Like that's a great little plan. I like Jesus's plan. Um, and that's the way the Lord works. He, he works in ways that we can't even imagine or think. And man, that's a fun way to live. Don't sell short the plan of the Lord. If you got the green light, say, Lord, steer the ship, guide my life to be in whatever plan you have, not my plan A or B, but whatever your plan is. Um, this is only one of the few miracles, by the way, that's recorded in all four of the gospels. Um, some argue this might just be the pinnacle miracle in Jesus's uh, ministries, because um, this is where the disciples seem to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So Jesus says to feed them. He doesn't really give them the details, but they kind of have to have a little bit of faith. Andrew, we know from another gospel, is the one who brought the five loaves, the kid with the five loaves and two fishes. There in John 6, verse eight and nine. Um, uh, but Jesus requires, I want you to see here in verse 14 and 15, Jesus requires order. This is, I think, important. He has them all seated. Make them all sit down by 50s in, the, in a company. So this is structure. And order. People say, I don't like organized religion. Well, as it turns out, Jesus was into organized religion. Not just here, organizing the people for the miracle, but also in the church, that the church is made up of elders and deacons, pastors and bishops or episcopuses is the word that are the governing sort of leaders uh, of the um, administrative governing elders, if you would. Um, and, and like I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 14, 40, so it reminds us, let all things be done decently and in order. So that's, that, those were marching orders for the church. So the church is to do things decently and in order. Some people don't like that. Uh, it's been tricky as modern culture uh, has sort of rolled its way uh, into, you know, um, you know, sort of an entitled bunch of people. Um, it's, it's always been tough. You know, I know Athey Creek ha has and had had a re reputation of being sort of brutal when it comes to getting up and using the restroom. There's still a guy on Facebook from years ago that said, whatever you do, don't have to go to that church if you have to use the restroom. Um, if Jesus had to use the bathroom, they wouldn't have let him get back into the service. That's what he said, <laughs> which is true. No, just, just kidding. No, I, no. Um, back, especially in our old, you know, in the old days at the school, when we were across the, at the school, the restrooms were there, but people would just kind of walk. It, it was such a distraction, you know, to, to, to the people. I feel like I'd, especially there's certain services like that. We have a few services out of our five on Sundays and Wednesday, or Saturday, Saturday and Sundays that are some more dis, disorderly than others. Uh, some services, it's like Grand Central Station, man, people just in and out and throwing babies up in the air, trying to appease them uh, while, like we've had a guy sit right here, tossing a baby right up in the air like this during the teaching as people just kind of going. 
And he just thought it was great, no distraction here, even though all the moms and grandmas are freaking out and not listening to a word. Uh, the, you know, it, uh, it's, it's tricky to find that balance. We, we do like decency and an order. Some people think, oh, Pastor Brett's wearing shorts and they're casual, nobody all dressed up, so we can walk around and just do whatever we want. We're a casual church. You'll notice we have things that are more decently in an order and other things where we don't really see as a biblical mandate to make us do other things. What we try to do is say, let's, let's, let's do what we can to make sure the word of God goes out with, without distraction as much as possible. It's always amazing when I, as soon as I mention the um, invitation uh, on a, a weekend service to accept Jesus Christ, it's inevitable. People just get up and start going, oh, this is the time we can beat everybody out of the parking lot. And as a pastor, I just think, wacko. Like I've had, I've had to bite my tongue and you say, Brett, you don't always. I know sometimes I say stuff I probably shouldn't when I make fun of people for leaving rudely. But I don't know, there's part of me that thinks they should be smacked. Come on, whack, get out of here. The laying on of hands uh, is, is what I would call that. It's like, come on, are you kidding? Uh, you know, like this is the most important part of the service where, where an invitation to accept Jesus Christ. You can either go to hell or you can go to heaven. And you're saying, hey, I can go to my car and beat everybody. Uh, it's like, that, that's kind of painful. Uh, but I have to probably bite my tongue more often than not. Um, the workings of the church and the function of the church is something that I think Jesus starts to model even order as they order them. And, and we'll see even more order as we keep going here. Uh, let's pick it up there in verse 16. So um, then he took the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, notice he didn't bow his head and fold his hands and close his eyes. He looked up to heaven. Most of the time when we see Jesus praying, it's looking up to heaven. Um, Brett, are you saying we all have to do that? I'm saying it's something we should and can do. You don't have to close your eyes and bow your heads. However, it is a helpful tool. I find bowing my head and closing my eyes helpful because I'm easily distracted. Um, and in a church with a lot of people like this, it is nice sometimes to bow your head and close your eyes. We have people that are really smart. They sit in the front rows here because there's so many weird things going on back here and they get distracted. So they just choose to sit right up here. They, if you're sitting in the middle, you might see that couple where the woman's just putting her fingers through her husband's hair, you know, <laughs> the whole Wednesday night Bible studies and, and everybody's behind there just going. It's like, you know, if that's you, I'm sorry. I, I didn't see you doing that tonight but I'm sure or you're clipping your fingernails, leaving a nice little pile for our custodians. Um, that happens too uh, from time to time. Anyways, uh, not being distracted is, is kind of an important thing in church uh, and you should help us with that. That's important. Well, uh, looking up to heaven, Jesus, he blessed them and break it and gave the disciples and they set it before the multitude. Verse 17, and they did eat and were all filled and there was taken up of fragments that remained to them 12 baskets. Isn't that great? From five loaves and two fish to 12 baskets. Why 12 baskets? I've heard esoteric sermons because there were 12 tribes of Israel and this and that. I almost wonder if it's, there's 12 disciples and they were all kind of, well, how are we gonna do this? And gee, I wonder if Jesus just wanted to kind of rub it in a little bit, like each one of them had to carry a basket. Wow, we were asking how this was gonna work out. Like, I wonder if the Lord just kind of chuckled as they're all, you know, oh, my back's hurting. It's like, you know, basket after basket. I, I think that's great. Um, I don't know. But um, 12 baskets were left over uh, after feeding the 5,000 men and however many others that were there. All were filled. And by the way, this is something that Jesus does, not just with the feeding of the 5,000, but he does it with everyone. Jesus is the one who satisfies. 
your soul. He will fill you up. You know, uh, Jesus said this in John 6, 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Um, Not only practically here in the feeding of the 5,000, but spiritually for our lives as well. Verse 18, and it came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with them. And he asked them saying, whom uh, whom say the people that I am? Um, how many times do we see Jesus praying? Like, you know, as you read the Bible, Jesus is praying often, all the time. And he does it uh, regularly and fervently, just a good reminder for us. But there's rumors now of who Jesus is because of the miracles. Um, Jesus didn't want followers because of his miracles, it seems. Remember, he'd always say, now don't tell anybody about this. He didn't want word to get out because of the miracle. Um, but Jesus would want people to know who he was, the savior of the world. So now he's asked them, whom say the people that I am? Verse 19, they answering said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah. Others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. And he said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, the Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be slain and be raised on the third day. Again, we've talked about this in the other gospels. How many times did Jesus give the disciples the the exact details of what was gonna happen? Right here, verse 22 spells it all out. But the disciples seem to have some kind of blinders or you know earplugs in where they just do not hear this. They don't get it so that when it all comes down, they have no idea what's going on. And it's almost hard to imagine after how many times Jesus says this to them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm gonna suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, they're gonna kill me, but on the third day, I'm gonna rise again. It doesn't get more clear than that. Um, So why were the disciples not able to know what was going on? We'll see a little bit of that as we keep going. Um, So um, by the way, we've done whole studies on this that, you know, that uh, Peter did, you know, it's even more detailed there in uh, Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, who do men say that I, the son of man am? And Peter answered, you're the Christos, the Messiah and that whole dissertation. So Luke gives more of an abbreviated version of that. Um, But we read it in in, uh, detail in Matthew. Well, um, verse 23, um, And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words of him shall the son of man be ashamed. And when he shall come into his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. We looked at verse 23 and 24 on the weekend service. Uh, You know, deny yourself, take up your cross. What does it mean to daily take up your cross and follow Jesus? Um, This is such an important thing. Um, now, one of the things before we move on on this, um, the religious leaders are already, you know, um, you know, getting ready to 
do them in. Verse 22 reminds us of that. Um, interesting thing, you know, Jesus is saying all these powerful and now really controversial thing, things, you know, this deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. This is some of the stuff that the leaders are gonna hate. They're gonna hate the stuff that Jesus is saying. Isn't it amazing that the religious leaders would be the ultimate ones who would bring about the crucifixion of Christ? Um, what, what do religious leaders say about Jesus today? I think we have to watch out because people just sort of trust religious leaders, although they really shouldn't for the most part. I'm amazed at the trust that people do have in religious leaders. It was old J. Vernon McGee, he's in heaven now, but he said, someday the church of the United States would need to meet underground. He made that statement. The, the true church of Jesus Christ is gonna have to go underground. The main opponents of true church would be the mainline denominations. That's what, that's what old J. Vernon said. And you know, I used to think that's pretty radical to say that, but I have to say, I can almost see the handwriting on the wall. Um, you know, you see the church going in all kinds of weird and crazy directions, if you, if you keep up with this stuff. The United Methodists in some, this last summer, um, they, lo they lost one-fifth of their U.S. churches. I think it's over 2,000 of their churches um, in a schism driven by growing defiance of LGBTQ bans. Uh, so the United Methodists are not so united as it turns out. Um, but it's really sad because, you know, um, it's funny how the United, whenever you see United at the beginning of a religion denomination, watch out. United usually means wacko. Um, and you have to watch out for that. Um, you know, the Pope on October 2nd, just this last month, uh, suggests blessings for same-sex unions possible uh, in a response to five conservative cardinals. Washington Post, November 9th, 2023, Vatican says transgender people can be baptized and serve as godparents. Um, so this is the, you know, Catholic Church. And I, I, I know that, you know, even though the Catholic Church has some really kind of strange doctrines, uh, that's why we are Protestants, because the Catholics uh, did some kind of crazy things through history. At least there was a, a semblance of trying to do what the Bible says, but with this Pope, he's kind of going off the rails, like a lot of Protestant churches. Like you can see it in Protestant churches and Catholic churches. And they're just leaving by the droves, true doctrines, uh, calling good evil and evil good. And I believe that it, it's not that much of a stretch to, to the imagination to see where real persecution could come to churches that say, we're gonna stand on that straight, true path of the word of God. Believing in truth might bring about persecution, even from the religious leaders of the day, just like they were in Jesus's time. Let that be a word for us to kind of be cautious uh, as we get into the last days. Um, you know, uh, we looked at this section, like I said, Jesus talking about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and what did that mean daily? If you missed that, it's kind of an important, uh, we did a study on all the things the Bible says that should be part of your daily walk with Christ. Um, but verse 25, what is it, um, you know, what is it advantage to a guy or girl if you gain the whole world but lose your, yourself uh, or be cast away? Um, you can lose yourself by gaining the whole world. And we see people do that all the time. Um, Jesus taught the opposite. Deny your, yourself, take up your cross and follow um, him. By the way, one of the things people try to gain in this world is wealth and riches. But how much does the Bible have to say about wealth? Charge them, Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy six seventeen, that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded or trust in uncertain riches. Um, but to trust the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. 
Then Jesus says something that's interesting and it's become very controversial. One of those things atheists like to say, Jesus contradicted himself or he spoke wrong things. And it's, it's interesting, this is a, uh, the, one of the champion verses of the atheists or the Bible skeptics and critics is what Jesus says there in verse 27. He says, but I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And they say, see, Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. If he was God, he would have known that all those guys are gonna die before the kingdom would come. So Jesus was wrong. And people go, oh, I guess I might as well close up. I might as well go home. Our Bibles were wrong. Because um, the problem with that is you didn't keep reading because the whole rest of the story is talking about this very event. In fact, when would these disciples, you gotta understand, we're talking to, when Jesus says, you know, I tell you the truth, there'll be some standing here, not all of them, so we know already it's a small group of them that are gonna see the kingdom of God before they die. Um, so we already know that. And, and what happens? Eight days later, this happens, where only a small group of them, Peter, James, and John, are gonna see the glory of Jesus in his kingdom. Check this out, I'll show you what I mean. It says in verse 28, and it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And he prayed, as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. How did they know, by the way, this was Moses and Elijah? Have you ever wondered that? Was Moses carrying the tables of stone? Um, did Elijah cough and a little smoke came out of his mouth from you know, the calling fire and stuff? Zaps of bolts of lightning come out of his fingertips. I don't know, maybe there was like a, a conference where you get the little name tag, hello, I'm Moses, hello, I'm, I don't know. Uh, but they knew, they knew that it was Moses and Elijah. Um, now, one of the things you should know is both of these guys had questionable circumstances around their death, uh, to say the least. Elijah never saw death. He was taken up in a fiery chariot up in heaven. Moses, when he died, the book of Jude tells us that um, Michael, the archangel, and Satan contended over the body of Moses. And it tells us that actually God buried Moses. That's kind of a weird thing. Um, but what is the deal with that? It's interesting these two guys show up um, but there's a few things that I want you to see here. In verse 31, where it says, and um, these guys, Moses and Elijah, along with Jesus, notice it says, when Jesus prayed, his countenance was changed. And the, we, we looked at this in previous studies. Metamorpho is the Greek, metamorphosis. Jesus metamorphosized into something bright and white. Um, uh, one of the gospels says, like no white anybody had ever seen before. Um, just a super bright whiteness. Here, Luke says he, his, his raiment was white and glistering, which means extra bright. And then something about Moses and Elijah, who, verse 31, appeared in glory. What does that mean? Appearing in glory. Well, there's a few key words here that might be important. When it says, and they spake of his decease. Um, what does that mean? The, the, the Greek word for decease is exodus, um, which is a word you recognize from the Hebrew. Exodus. 
Um, it means to exit. Uh, it means the close of one's career, one's final fate, the departure from life, exodus. Um, why were they talking about Jesus' exodus? Here he is, it's like he's, they see him in glory, in his glorified state. Um, what is this, what are they seeing? I would suggest to you seeing Jesus in his glory, in his glorified state, is seeing Jesus um, and seeing what the kingdom of God is gonna look like. You see, I believe when you and I are taken up to be with the Lord and we're transformed and we get our new bodies, we're gonna be given glorified bodies, the Bible says. And that's gonna be one of the characteristics of the kingdom. Um, you know, uh, what happened was, I believe that was the original intent. I believe the original intent in the Garden of Eden before sin of man was that man would eventually enter into glory into God's kingdom, uh, but without death. Death became a requirement once we sinned. Why didn't Jesus just go from that moment of glorious transfiguration on, on the high mountain there in Israel? Why did he just ascend into heaven right there into his kingdom? Because he still had a job to do. That's why they were talking about his exit, how it would come to pass. Um, so Christ came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and we should be really glad about that. You know, it's almost like at that point, Jesus could have said, you know what? Um, I kind of like my glorified body and I'm kind of done with all you guys. Goodbye, the end. That'd be the end of our Bibles. We'd like, ah. And we'd all be doomed to hell because Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. But those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, they got to see the kingdom of God, Jesus. The kingdom of God, remember, what is the kingdom of God? It is something that's coming in the future, but it also is anything. Remember when Jesus said, the kingdom of God is among you? Anything where the king of kings is there and a part of that. What did the disciples see? They saw the king of kings glorified in his glorious body with Moses and Elijah standing right there. Um, they're seeing the glorious kingdom in its sort of future mode. That's why Jesus said, there's some in this group that'll, that'll see or not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. So make sure, and you know, when people use this argument, well, Jesus was wrong, didn't know what he was talking about. It's just because they didn't really read or see what was actually going on here. It's pretty clear that Peter, James, and John got to see Jesus in his glory right there. Well, verse 32, but Peter and they that were with them were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with them. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Does that crack anybody up? Peter said, not knowing what he was talking about, but he said it anyway. Uh, I do that sometimes. Poor Peter always opened his mouth. Um, you know, it's, it's a funny thing when you, when you wake up in the middle of the night, um, you're not as sharp sometimes. Uh, years ago, I played a prank with a, a guy. Uh, he was one of our pastors, a good friend of mine, Jim Corson. He's got a great church over in Newburgh. Um, uh, and um, we, uh, one night I, I was like, I was 18 or something when I did this to Jim, but it was around Christmas. And so a bunch of us broke into his house. We kind of did this before you get shot for such a thing. Um, we broke into his house and we had video cameras and lights and we were right up to his bed where he's sleeping. And we said, hey, Jim, good morning. This is good morning, America. You know, we were just messing around. And I said, what's the meaning of Christmas? And he just sat up out of bed, out of, out of a cold sleep, sat up and said, silent night. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's a really good comeback out of a cold sleep. I'm not that sharp out of a cold sleep. 
Um, but Peter and James and John, they're, they're sawing logs and they're sleeping and then they wake up and they're, ah, Moses, Elijah. And he doesn't know what to say. So not knowing what to say, he said, hey, let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Well, you know the story, verse 34, while he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days, um, any of those things which they had seen. Some things are just too much to tell until later, until after the fact, um, but not knowing you know, what to say. Peter just said, let's do this, bad idea. It was President Calvin Coolidge. He said, I have never been hurt by what I have not said. Sometimes it's better to keep your mouth shut, right? Um, there's a guy, uh, Kondraty uh, Rylevev, uh, I can't pronounce these Russian names very well, but uh, he led an uprising against uh, Russian Tsar Nicholas I, and he was sentenced to be hanged. Well, he got hung and then the rope broke. Um, and, you know, events like this in those days, if that, something like that happened, usually a man was pardoned because it was like some, you know, thing that God did to break the rope or whatever. But as uh, Ryalvev got to his feet after falling and bruised and stuff, he got, got up and he said, man, even in Russia, they don't even know how to do anything properly, uh, not even know how to make a rope. That's what he said. Well, a messenger went immediately to the winter palace of the, uh, and the news of the failed hanging hit Nicholas I and he was getting ready to sign the pardon because the rope broke. As he was getting ready to sign it, uh, he said to the messenger, did Rilev say anything after the miracle of his you know, rope breaking? And the messenger, he said, yeah. He said, uh, he said that Russians don't make anything. They don't make a rope that doesn't break. And then Nicholas I said, well, then in that case, let's prove the contrary. And the next day, Revlev was hanged, and this time the rope did not break. Be careful what you say. Your words will get you into trouble. I've never regretted stuff I did not say. Verse 34, and there came a voice of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Again, the first mention of love in the gospel of Luke and in all the gospels is God's love for his son. That's pretty cool. And Jesus was found alone and they kept it close. And we've done studies on this in previous Mark chapter nine, Matthew chapter 17, that it's a good thing they looked up and saw Jesus only, not Elijah, not Moses. Elijah was the synonymous with the power of God that destroyed. Moses' name was synonymous with the law of God, which also destroyed. Jesus is a better, it'd be a sorry exchange to have Moses or Elijah instead of Jesus. And that's what God's saying when he says, Peter, this is my beloved son, hear him. Don't, don't get all up into Moses and Elijah. They were great men of prophets of the old, but they can't hold a candle next to my son. Verse 37, and it came to pass uh, that on the next day when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. And behold, a man of, uh, of the company cried out saying, Master, I beseech thee, look upon my son for he is mine only child. And lo, a spirit taketh him, and he suddenly cries out, and it teareth him, and he foameth again, like foaming at the mouth, and bruising him hardly departs from him. And I besought thy disciples to cast him out, but they could not. See, the, the, the three were up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, the other disciples, the other nine, were down there trying to cast out this demon, but they couldn't. So um, he said, man, I tried to get your disciples, but they couldn't do it. Verse 41, and Jesus answering said, oh, faithless, and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? Bring thy son hither. 
And as he was yet coming, the devil threw him down and tear him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. Interesting word there uh, where it says that it was, um, he was thrown down. The Greek word is phragnumi, uh, which, which is like a wrestling term. Um, to break, to crack, to distort. It's like a judo throw kind of thing. This demonic entity was causing physical harm to this young guy. Um, in the other gospels, Jesus actually identifies, we learn what was lacking in the disciples. In Matthew 17, 14 through 21, they were lacking faith. That's what Jesus said to the disciples. In Mark 9, 29, they were lacking prayer and fasting. That's why they couldn't cast out the demon. So um, this is why Jesus is saying, you guys, I sent you out and I gave you power and authority, but they weren't employing the faith and the fasting and prayer, and thus they couldn't do that. So verse 40, uh, 43 goes on, and they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered everyone at the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these sayings sink down into your ears where the son of man shall be delivered into the hands of men. Um, let, let this sink in, he says. Man, when Jesus says, boy, let this sink in, you should probably listen up. And he's again going on the same theme of what was verse 22 about going to Jerusalem, killed of the scribes and the elders, crucified, rising on the third day. He's back to that message. Um, so he says, whatever you do, let this sink into your hearts, your ears. Verse 45, but they understood not this saying. And it was hid from them that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. Have you ever been afraid to ask the question at work, lest you be exposed as the person who doesn't get it? But what I've found is, if you're thinking that, probably most everybody else is too. So they're all, oh yeah, got it. <laughs> I wonder what they're talking about. That's what's going on with the disciples. All 12 of them are like, yeah, yeah, cool, got it, Jesus. What is he saying? going to go to Jerusalem and what? And, and, and it says that it was hidden to them. I, it seems to me like maybe there's an implication that, that, that for some reason, God wasn't going to allow them to, for whatever reason, fully understand this. They would understand all this later after the fact. And we do see them kind of go, oh yeah, this is what Jesus was talking about. That stuff we didn't understand. Um, that is the way of the Lord, by the way. Um, some things you just won't understand until the Lord allows you to understand them. You read your Bible, and when you're frustrated by a passage in Scripture, don't hang it up and don't get frustrated and don't say, I have to figure this out, um, because sometimes the Lord just kind of hides things from you. But in his timing, he'll reveal his truth to you. And that's something that I see happening with the disciples here, but it also happens with us. Well, verse 46, um, it says, Then there arose a reasoning among them, which, which of them should be the greatest? Oh boy, they, here they are. I don't understand anything, but I wonder which one of us are the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him uh, by him and said unto them, whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall re receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Have you ever met a person that doesn't like children? I've noticed it's hard for me to like people that don't like children. 
I don't know why that is, but usually people say, I don't like children. And I think it's because it's not a very Jesus characteristic. Jesus liked the children. It was the disciples who said, get these kids out of here. And Jesus said, no, suffer the little children to come unto me. Jesus was a children guy. Children liked being around him. Yeah, but kids are gross, Pastor Brett. Well, you were a kid once too, don't forget that. And you were probably gross. Do you ever wonder if this little child, Jesus sat you know, here, wonder if the kid is like sitting there and picking his nose? You moms and dads know that that happened, right? It's like every time there's an important moment, you know, the family photos or the grandparents come over or you're showing your kids off, and they just go right for the nose and they're just digging deep for gold in there. And your kids are doing that, like, oh, stop doing that, don't do that. But the kid's like, whatever, I don't, you're not trying to impress anybody. Um, I, I just wonder if as the kids sitting there, like, what was he doing? Is, was he this angelic, beautiful little child as we colored in the story? Or was he a little kid picking his nose? But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, man, um, whoever shall receive this child in my name receives me. Um, that, that's a pretty sobering thing. And whosoever shall receive me receives him that sent me. So what an important thing that Jesus is talking about. Um, by the way, um, uh, Jesus had just delivered for the demon-possessed guy. Um, and, um, and now, you know, he tells the disciples, you guys have to understand, I'm going to go and I'm going to be delivered in the hands of men. And the guy's are like, we don't understand that, but which one of us are the greatest? And, and Jesus had to bring them back down. Simplicity, man, you got to be humble. Be like a child if you want to be part of my kingdom. And that's the message Jesus constantly gives. Well, verse 49 and John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name and we forbade him because he followed not with us. And Jesus said unto him, forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. What? The disciples are like, he's not part of our club. He's not one of the 12 and he's going around casting demons out in your name. And, and then shockingly, Jesus says, leave him alone. If he's not against us, he's for us. Um, isn't it interesting that there's some guy in history, we don't know his name, we don't know anything about him, but he was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And we don't know anything about him except for this. The disciples told him to stop it. And Jesus said, leave him alone. That's an interesting kind of deal there that, that um, you know, Jesus sort of lets, lets, him, uh, lets him go and do his thing. Um, we have to be careful. As, as pastors, it's a tricky place because I do believe we're called to warn people of wolves in sheep's clothing. And also like when I'm talking about Assembly of God and Baptists, you'll notice I talk about those guys as our Baptist friends and our Assembly of God friends. Well, Brett, they believe, some of those guys believe in slaying in the spirit. But you know what's great about that? That's not an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. It's important, but it's not an essential doctrine. If you don't know the essential doctrines that sort of move you within or outside of the pale of orthodoxy, we've done whole teachings. You can look up on our special studies, uh, essential doctrines. We've done a whole series on what are the essential doctrines? But we have to be really careful to um, still affirm people that might have different views than us and may not be part of our team, as, as it were. Um, it's, it's a tricky thing to know when to kind of speak against things uh, and then how to speak against them. If they're outside of the pill of orthodoxy, um, which is real tricky, you know, the Catholic Church is tricky. I'll tell you why. I was, I was asked this by a guy the other day, Brett, how can you even mention the Catholics as if they're even saved? Well, uh, that's a hard one. And not everybody's gonna agree with me on this one. I think the Catholic leadership and some of the priests and the Pope are gonna have a lot to answer for when they stand before God. 
And maybe some of them aren't even saved. I don't know. Well, Brett, who are you to say that? Only the Lord knows that. But I do believe there are some simple people who just say, man, we, we, go to the, we were raised in the Catholic church. But if they believe, if they believe and have confessed with their mouth that Jesus Christ, God's son died on the cross, was buried and rose again, Bible says they're gonna be saved. Well, bro, shouldn't you have the same attitude as the Mormons? Here's why we don't. At least the Catholics are talking about the same Jesus that we're talking about. That's the difference. Don't get me wrong, the Catholics, I can't agree with praying to the saints or Mary or you know infant baptism. And there's a bunch of things I don't agree with in the Catholic church. I can go on and on for hours on that. But the Mormons, even though it sounds like they're talking about the same Jesus, they are not. They're talking about a different Jesus. They're, they're talking about a Jesus that is not the son of God. Uh, they don't believe in that Trinity the same way we do. Now, it's interesting, Mormonism has uh, changed over time and they're trying to get closer and closer to looking like Christians now. Um, but I do think there's a danger in Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnessism. Those are why they're, they're delineated. It's not me who's saying this. It's the Christian church has always called Mormonism a cult and also Jehovah's Witness as a cult. Why? Because they're outside of the pale of orthodoxy on essential doctrines. Don't be mad at me on this one. This, I'm, I'm saying something that churches for hundreds of years have been saying the same thing that are within the pale of orthodoxy. The Catholics are a little tricky because they do believe in the same Jesus. Their doctrines though can sometimes maybe even get them almost outside of the pale of orthodoxy. It's a, it's a sketchy deal. And so I love when Catholic people come to Athey Creek and I'll tell you why. Because one of the things the Catholic Church doesn't encourage really is for you to be a Bible student, to study what the Bible actually says. In fact, in olden days, did you know the Catholics used to chain the Bible to the pulpit so that no you know, layman could get a hold of it and read it? Because they didn't want the, 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 the average Joe Catholic person to study the Bible for themselves. Once you start reading the Bible though, you kind of go, well, that's kind of interesting. You know, here's, here's me calling father so-and-so, father so-and-so, when Jesus said, don't call anyone your father. Um, wow, you read your Bible and it says, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is the, the one Jesus Christ, Paul told Timothy. While the Catholic church is saying, oh, there's other mediation, you can pray to the saints or, you know, and stuff like this. They're just wrong. Indulgences uh, that were paid for centuries for getting people out of hell. That was again, first Babylonians. That's not in the Bible anywhere, but the Catholics got that. So we have to be really careful. Uh, is your grandma a Catholic and does she know Jesus? Is she gonna go to heaven? It's possible. I've met some little old Catholic ladies that I think love Jesus maybe more than some of the Protestants I know. Um, but is the doctrine wacko of the Pope? Very much so. And usually those little old ladies that I've met that are Catholics are saying, yeah, we don't like this Pope. Yeah, but if, what about, isn't he supposed to be infallible? Like, like we could go on and on talking about the problems, uh, but I do think we have to be really careful. Uh, and when we're calling out the wolves, uh, I know that's controversial, but um, it's something we should say. By the way, this will really get people up in a tizzy, but. What's gonna happen when the rapture of the church happens? The rapture of the church is where all true Christians that I just described, whoever's in that category, will be raptured. What will be left? Who will be left of, of the churches, I would say? Um, I guarantee a lot of Episcopals will be left behind because the Episcopal church is really hard to be a Christian and be a part of that church because of their essential doctrines, wacko. Um, and they've lost it. I, I wouldn't even have said that about the Episcopal Church even 20, 30 years ago, but things have changed. 
Um, but I wonder how many Catholics, and, and what about the Catholic institution? And you know, the Catholic institution is more wealthy than most nations. The Bible says that after the rapture of the church happens, the tribulation kicks into gear and there's gonna be a new world religion established. Who is gonna establish that new world religion? Um, well, the one that's got the most money to do such a thing is the Catholic church. But I'm not gonna say it's just the Catholics. I'm gonna say any part of the church so-called that is not really saved and gets left behind, they're probably gonna be quick to join up with this one world religion and they'll just make it into one big, you know, they're already working on that, if you know. They're already building temples to all the great religions of the world. And they're getting ready for that one world religion. Um, whatever you do, don't be a, you know, that's why we're not really into the denominational thing. We're more into a biblical thing. Like follow what the Bible says, whatever you're from. If you're a Catholic, get out your Bible and read it, study it. See if what, you know, your church is teaching is true or false and be careful about that. Well, we got to hurry. We're running out of time. Um, where were we? Um, verse 49. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. Oh, we already did that one, sorry. Um, verse 51, and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 51 is the big shift. He's setting his face to go to Jerusalem now. Um, this is a big deal. And he sent messengers before his face and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Huh. Because of the tension between Samaritans and Jews, by the way. That, there was a racism that was going on back then. They would reject Jesus because of their race, racial ideas. Verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire come down from heaven as, uh, and consume them as Elijah did? What did John just say, John the apostle? Um, these are called the sons of thunders, uh, you know, J James and John. And they suggest these Samaritans who don't like you, can we call fire down from heaven and burn them? Um, I think John and the disciples didn't like the Samaritans. In some way you might say this is kind of racist. And what does Jesus say? Verse 55, he turned and rebuked them saying, you know not what a matter of spirit you're of. For the son of man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Oh, I wonder if James and John felt just a little bad about their suggestion to fry them. Be careful, Christian. You know, it's so tempting to be angry and say, yeah, Lord, blast them. But don't misrepresent the Lord on this. Well, verse 57, it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Um, do you think he's gonna father, follow Jesus wherever, wherever he goes? Nope, verse 58, Jesus said unto him, foxes have goals, birds have, of the air have nests, but the son of man hath nowhere to lay his head. In other words, dude, you didn't count the cost. You, you, you wanna live comfortably, but if you're gonna follow me, you're gonna have to be sort of homeless. Second guy, verse 59, he said to another, follow me, Jesus said. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said to them, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Um, was Jesus being uncaring about the poor dead father? No. Um, this is kind of an interesting way of saying, I need, let me go and take care of my dad. And then when he dies someday, uh, then I'll follow you. In other words, he was trying to sort of put off 
the idea of, um, you know, let me go bury my dead. And then Jesus, come on, you know, let the dead bury the dead. In other words, your dad's alive and kicking, things are great. You should follow me now and don't put it off. Well, same thing with person number three, verse uh, 61. Another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my house, at home in my house. And Jesus said unto him, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Um, this guy cared more about his family than following Jesus. This is Jesus setting priorities radically. You should first be a follower of Jesus and then everything else comes under that. Family, friends, your job, material possessions. Matthew six thirty three. Jesus made it clear, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. If you want family, friend, take care of your dad, follow Jesus, even if it costs you. Jesus is saying, count the costs before you sign on to be one of my disciples. That's a common theme throughout this whole gospel narrative where Jesus speaks to these people about, you know, counting the cost. Well, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to count the cost as we choose to follow you and be disciples. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't let material things or even personal relationships get between the plan that you have for us to serve you. Help us to keep you not number one in our lives, but truly everything in our lives, that we would put everything under the same umbrella as Jesus' followers. Um, help us to, to know what that means and to not be fickle like so many of these people in this story. Um, I pray that you'd help us to walk in truth. Lord, as the disciples, it takes them so long to figure stuff out. I pray that by your spirit, you would just help us to understand the truth of your word. Give us discernment when we rightly divide the word, when we look at churches and behaviors and denominations and other churches. Help us to approve what is excellent, but help us also to call out the things that are evil and even misguided and wrong. Help us to have the right heart and the right spirit when we do that, Lord, I pray. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.